This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Madiwa Kavaza joins us for our weekly tech wrap. Madiwa, for the first time in 2024, a good afternoon to you. Good evening, Lord Sando. How are you, Madiwa? <laughs> <laughs> Even in 2024, we are alive, good, well, and thriving. Fantastic. But yeah, I'm wondering, uh, you know, before we get into uh, all the things that we could speak about today, just reflecting on tech, uh, you know, in 2023 and what we are anticipating to come out of 2024, what are some of the themes uh, that you're most looking out for? Well, very interestingly, um, it's a good thing that we're talking today because mm-hmm. Um, this week um, saw the uh, the first big tech event of the year. Um, it's an event that happened in Las Vegas. It's called the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES. And uh, obviously, um, artificial intelligence, you know, continues to be a huge theme, um, you know, that's, uh, that's going on out there. But... Um, unlike in 2023, where we were so obsessed with the likes of ChatGPT mm-hmm. and Bard and uh, yeah, Google Bard and you know all of those different platforms, this year it seems that people are going to be you know grappling with I think two things. Uh, firstly, you know now that the novelty has worn off, how do people make use of AI on a day-to-day basis? Um, in my estimation, I think Microsoft is going to do a lot to make people use AI because it's now being rolled out into the enterprise versions of Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. So if you're in a corporate job or organization that makes use of those platforms and has Office 365, it's likely that you will have access to that. Imagine a world where you don't have to type in a formula to make a pivot table or something like that in Excel. You just write what you want it to do, and it just produces that for you. I think that's going to be a huge thing um, in 2024. And then the second piece is um, extending AI use beyond just the text um, type of interaction to something else. Um, I think Facebook has a set of glasses where you can look at something and you can talk to the AI. You know, you look at a book or you look at an object, uh, an animal, and then, you know, building, and you can get uh, that real-time uh, interaction. So beyond text, and now getting the visual input, maybe even the audio input um, in how we interact with the AI. I think that's going to, the AI thing, it's not yet over. We're going to continue to do to, to explore it. I'll tell you, with you uh, when it comes to AI, I am not pro, I'm not anti-development, but I am very concerned about it. And I'm wondering, I think I've asked you this question before, but in 2024, are we having uh, more conversations around the boundaries uh, on how we even develop AI tools? Or are we in still a discovery phase? And so anything goes and anything means anything with you, even the most dangerous things, even the most manipulative things, even the things uh, that could really put the world in utter chaos. Well, that's a very good question, Nolotanda, and I say that because 
like any other technology, there's uh, the good and the bad. I think a lot of people have obviously uh, focused on the good side of things. Everyone is thinking about how they can use things like AI to be more productive or to, to get things done faster, quicker, better, all that. But at the same time, you do have... Um, a group of people whose intentions are not always so good. You know, criminals can now use the same technology to also become, you know, more efficient in the things that they do, right? So you've got all of those things. Uh, but I do think that the drama that we saw with uh, ChatGPT's parent company, OpenAI, mm-hmm. at the end of 2023 points to the moral dilemma that people are having right now mm-hmm. because uh, a big part of that board shakeup that saw Sam Altman being unceremoniously fired mm-hmm. um, from his CEO role for a period was around uh, the fact that there was some concerns. Imagine concerns that OpenAI, probably the most prolific AI company in the world, uh, being concerned that perhaps we are developing this technology a bit too fast. So if a company like that, that is leading the AI revolution, is worried that perhaps we are developing the technology too quickly, then I'm definitely going to be worried um, you know, about, uh, about the same thing. And then I think the second piece is the fact that um, as much as we talk about the negative side of things, um, for me, it's just the normal everyday world in which we live in, right, and how it's going to be impacted, especially in the way that we interact online. I believe a couple of months ago, it was CNBC Africa, uh, they started having a a bulletin that would be anchored by uh, okay. an AI-generated mm-hmm. avatar, right? I don't think that's a bad thing, but more and more in life we're going to be seeing more of those instances of AI being used. How does a normal person um, know what is AI-generated and what they are watching, the news that they're consuming? When you're on social media, what is the photo, you know? Uh, does Nolutando need to be at the beach to show that she's living her best life? Mm-hmm. Or can she just generate an image, you know, to say I was at the beach without even having uh, stepped foot out of her house? Mm-hmm. This is a very scary one. I'll tell you this week, I learned of something called a death a GPT. Um, and it's a really, you know, the University of Copenhagen, as well as Northeastern University in Boston, they have developed an algorithm that can predict a person's life course, including premature death death um you know they believe that uh, people's life patterns and uh can, can all be predicted and it's all put in a model in my mind i thought this could change the insurance industry and for the worst media because the, the industry could say to you well with the models that we have now we were kind of you know um really leaving uh, room for a mistake but this uh, algorithm is so much more accurate uh, that you could just be uninsurable as a person based on this and so things like that really really concern me but of course uh, that is a risk um, averse person's view. Yeah, no, 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 it is. And um, uh, using your example, you might be thinking that someone would be uninsurable, but I, I could imagine that, uh, you know, certain unscrupulous characters in the insurance industries might use that as an opportunity to hike up premiums, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, if um, if you already know what the outco- outcome is going to be, then you can literally play the cards, uh, you know, to 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 your advantage. So it is a it is a, a, a brave and tough new world um, that we are going into. 
And, you know, right now it seems that uh, the biggest differentiator is going to be not necessarily who's using AI, but rather who's got the most powerful AI and who's best at most effectively uh, using their AI. Well, Madea, all we can do is sit back and watch, and we'll be—I'll be watching this one very, very closely. Keen to get into uh, other news now. Looking at uh, SAP, what happened with SAP and the city of Johannesburg and ESCOM and allegations of a bribery? So this one is a very interesting one. It's a huge case um, that uh, stems from the state capture in, um, investigations. Um, but it also then has to do um, with the fact that um, SAP was at the heart of a number of uh, corruption allegations. Um, you know, when it comes to um, when it comes to a number of uh, you, you know different uh, government departments, including ESCOM, Transnet, uh, the cities of Johannesburg and Swane, the Houting Department of Finance, um, SARS, as well as Prasa. And um, this week we saw them actually settling um, in a U.S. court, and basically they have signed a settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice, um, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC, as well as South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority. Uh, I know that people usually refer to them as uh, the NPA. Mm-hmm. And basically they have agreed um, to pay over 4 billion rand in um, in fines, you know, that are going to be used as settlement uh, for bribery claims. Now, what's interesting about this particular story is that as much as it centers around um, state captains of Africa, um, it's, it's, it's a wide-ranging case because the court documents actually show that SAP um, has been implica- was also implicated in Malawi, mm-hmm. in Tanzania, in Ghana, Kenya, Indonesia, as well as uh, Azerbaijan. And it's basically the same type of crime in almost all the countries, including South Africa, where basically um, SAP, which is a German you know, software company, was um, using bribery and corruption to get tenders and to get contracts. Um, you know, to do IT, you know, for certain types of customers. That's how they were winning certain types of business. Um, so that's where the case comes from. So for over four billion, that's how much they've agreed to pay. And out of that, two point two billion um, is specifically, um, you know, for the for the entities um, in South Africa, including Eskom Transnet and the other, you know, list of guys that uh, we spoke about. It is a mind blowing case. Um, obviously, for people that have been following state capture, they would have you know, known a little bit about what was going on. But I think just to highlight one or two of the instances, because there's a whole list um, you know, of the South African ones, but basically SAP admitted um, you know, in 2015 uh, that it was awarded a contract by Transnet worth $6.5 million uh, sure. with, the assist- with the assistance of an entity that was linked to the Guptas, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that entity was given $1 million in, uh, in commission. SAP also admitted to having paid bribes to obtain a contract with the city of Johannesburg in that same year of 2015. That was a $13.2 million contract, um, a 2.2 million rand bribe 
um, was paid to win this contract, uh, with the company also paying for trips to New York for government officials um, in May and September of that year, you know, including golf, including officials. So I guess that gives you a flavor of the types of things that uh, SAP was doing behind the scenes to try and get these contracts. It's really bizarre, and I know many listeners are uh, have heard the issue of there being a fine and that all, uh, you know, uh, being uh, negotiated in the U.S. part with our NPA. What people are also going to want to know about is, has anybody been arrested? Is there anybody behind bars? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, paying a bribe is also a bit of a confession, and I assume that that also comes with names and, and, and. Well, names might be a bit hard to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. I personally haven't seen the aims, uh, but um, there is an interesting. Uh, oh, I, I'm just looking for. I'm just looking for the exact wording here that gives you a sense. SAP says that it separated. It separated itself from all responsible from all responsible parties. More than five years ago, the past conduct of certain former colleagues and former partners does not reflect SAP's values and our commitment to ethical behavior. So, you know, I'm I'm ve- I'm I'm reminded of uh, uh, what was that word that was used a few years ago? Um, a conscious uncoupling, decoupling. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so it decoupling. literally sounds like that's the same thing that they're saying. Yeah, we've separated ourselves from the responsible parties. You know, the only way to uh, get rid of corruption is to uh, punish it severely. And I just don't think we're getting it right as a country. Let's talk about South Sea now. I read about this one. This was an interesting one, uh, you know, in terms of what's happening with um, Blue Label Telecoms trying to take control of a South Sea and there being other shareholders who are saying that Blue Label uh, Telecoms is trying to do this behind their back. Um, then they should pay them for it. Just talk to us about, uh, you know, why this is uh, so uh, big at uh, South Sea right now. And maybe the, even the importance of the spectrum assets, which are really, I think, what making this all very contentious. So when you're looking at a company like South Sea, um, there's, um, over the last few years, there has been quite a negative sentiment around the company, um, you know, with uh, the fact that the company was under a lot of debt, um, the fact that the company was losing a lot of customers. And so anything that's seen as an asset in a company like that um, is going to have a lot of sensitivities around it. So the licenses that Celsius holds in terms of its spectrum assets and spectrum basically being uh, the radio waves that uh, the company uses yeah, to transmit, you know, voice calls, data, uh, that type of thing. That's actually said to be worth um, between six billion and seven point eight billion rand. So you can easily see why people are concerned about these particular assets because they cost so much. It's a huge part, um, you know, of what Southeast still has and uh, hold on, or holds on to as being actual assets on the ground. So there was um, a bit of an issue earlier in the week because in early December, uh, Sea applied to ICASA, which is the regulator, to basically transfer ownership of um, its licenses over to Blue Label Telecoms. Blue Label Telecoms is the biggest shareholder in South Sea. 
And for a long time, they've sat at the 45% mark in terms of their stake. After the recapitalization in uh, late 2022, they put up their stake to about 49.5%. And last year, they then said, okay, we are now going to be looking to take control of CLC. What does take control mean? Take control simply means we now want to have an above 50% shareholding so that we can actually help to direct um, you know, the company and what it does. So they've started a process where they're going to move to about 53% so that they'll now have effective control of Celsius. And part of you know, the process of getting that control is that usually you go to the competition commission if you want to take control of an entity. Mm. Go to the competition commission and they, you know, say yes or no for you to move forward with whatever deal you want to do. But when it comes to telecoms, there's an additional clause where you also then have to go to ICASA and ask them, you know, to do that because um, they, it, it's a licensing requirement. Celsi holds Spectrum, they hold the communications license, all that. And before you take control of an entity that holds those licenses, ICASA must say yes or no. Now, it seems that there was some misunderstanding between Blue Label and other shareholders because other shareholders, particularly a company called Celsaf, mm. which owns a quarter of Celsius, got the impression that Blue Label was trying to take over the licenses of Celsius, basically stripping Celsius of its assets. But when we spoke to Blue Label, they basically said, no, guys, this is just a procedural thing. We're just trying to get permission to take control of the company. Nothing is being moved. Nothing is changing hands. This is just a requirement from the regulator. So I think this week there might have been some very awkward conversations that were taking taking place um, you know, at South Sea or at least at shareholder, uh, the shareholder level. Well, it was a very interesting one there. And I think, uh, you know, with Salsi, we're all just waiting with a bated breath to start reporting on a company that has done a full 180. I think that's what we're hungry for uh, when it comes uh, to that specific uh, telecoms company. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, uh, we're hoping that at least with control, Blue Label will be able to help with the strategy a bit more because over the years they were they basically said, our issue is we're just trying to help to recapitalize the business. Um, you know, we're going to let management do what they do. But now it seems they want to take a more hands-on approach when it comes to uh, the day-to-day, you know, part of running, you know, that particular business. I remember the CEO, uh, one of the CEOs, Brett, once made a statement to say, well, we've taken the brunt of, um, you know, sell C and its apparent demise over the last few years, we might as well get into a position, um, you know, where we have control so that at least we can direct what the company does. If we've taken a hit for it, at least if we can also be controlling what it does, then, you know, the 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 exchange or the opportunity cost makes a little bit, you know, more sense. So we wait to see how they're going to direct it. Um, easy things will be them pushing up subscribers, you know, perhaps uh, growing certain things such as five, you know, their ISP or fiber type of business. Um, you know, let's see how they decide to, you know, to move forward on this one. 
Moving on now, I want to talk about multi-choice. Uh, they've launched a super sport betting. Is this more betting? You know, I think <laughs> I think uh, online gambling could be out of uh, control a little bit. Would you have so many platforms uh, to pick from? And of course, competition is important. So the issue isn't competition. But the issue here is just the amount of gambling. People used to go to casinos, physically take their bodies and their and their brains and their hands and their feet to casinos. And now we have people on their phones consistently betting over sport, which is something people love even more. I'm concerned about the model, um, maybe from a more, uh, not from a business perspective, more from a social uh, perspective. But obviously, there's lots of money to be made here. Definitely a lot of money to be made. But I want you to picture a world where maybe you're at home. Wow. Uh, let's use the this past World Cup that uh, South Africa was in, specifically the rugby one. Mm-hmm. You are watching a rugby World Cup match, perhaps it's the final, it's South Africa versus New Zealand. Things are looking tense, there's one point separating these two teams and you're just wondering how long can the Springboks hold on to this lead? You know, is this our time or is New Zealand going to get one on the, the, the box and, you know, lose the game? Now, whilst you are watching this match, imagine, you know, there is the possibility, you know, on your nice big screen TV, your nice smart TV, there's a little widget, um, you know, somewhere on the screen that says, do you want to place a bet on who's going to win this game in real time? <laughs> right mm-hmm. that is the the world um in which uh, multi choice is moving towards mm-hmm. we're not yet quite there because right now you need to you, you, there's an app and all of that mm-hmm. stuff but ultimately i think this is where we're going to see um you know the uh, you know the betting happens because most of the time you go to a bookie or you go to a place place your bet well before the match watch the match bite your nails a little bit, and then at the end of the match, you get match race or whatever it is, you get to know your fate. But imagine it happening. Imagine the impulse decision. Mm. You're literally watching the game. There's 45 minutes left. It's in the second half, you know, and you decide, ah, I think this game is going to go this way. I want to place the bet now. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite an interesting one. They launched uh, Supersport Bets uh, earlier in the month, and now we're going to see how they they move forward. It's actually now a proper launch to the public. They did a soft launch back in November mm-hmm. where they did release it out, you know, to certain members of the public, but now it's a proper platform that's out there. Obviously, it would be a big way to, once again, capitalize on Supersport, right? Um, like you said just now, there are so many platforms that are out there. There's Betway, um, Easy Bets, there's Hollywood Bets, and so many others that are out there. But, you know, Multitrace has decided that they're going to make use of um, the, what do you call this, they're going to make use of their tie-in with Supersport as a way to stand out. But I think a number that you might be interested in mm. is the fact that, uh, Data from the National Gambling Board of South Africa shows that gross gambling revenue in South Africa actually, um, you know, more than doubled, um, you know, for the 22-2023 year. Um, it went from $23 billion, right, mm-hmm. in 2020-2021 up to $47.2 wow. mm-hmm. billion rand in 2022-2023. Uh, so with that type of trajectory, I 
you know, can you really blame the likes of Montechers for wanting to get in on the action? Well, we'll be watching this one very closely. Um, uh, we'll be surprised to see many people uh, really putting uh, their money up for bet their families up. Um, with your, of course, it's an exaggeration. <laughs> up, you know, for like a Kaiser Chiefs soccer game. I just think the thought of it actually really scares me. Uh, but we'll be watching that one. Let's talk about Ethiopia now. This is a country that has, of course, uh, really battled with issues of war. Uh, but we know Vodacom recently moved into the space, um, building a startup there from scratch, uh, really saying it's expensive, but they have hope in the market and i was speaking about that being the next fintech investment destination on the continent yeah so basically this is one of those interesting cases where if you think about it a few years ago you know um, everyone wanted to get into nigeria because uh, people wanted to take advantage of uh, you know the big population and you know the big opportunity um, that was there but now when you look at, uh, you know, another country that has a huge population, that is um, Ethiopia, um, the likes of MTN and MultiChoice have benefited from being in a place like Nigeria. Um, you know, uh, Vodacom, you know, has now fully taken on the telecoms business uh, in Egypt uh, that, used to, that uh, used to be owned by Vodafone. And they've also, you know, started operations in a place like um, um, Ethiopia, having bid for a license. So it's the bidding of the licenses a couple of years ago um, and opening up the market because up until now, it was just the state-run monopoly that used to run telecoms in Ethiopia. So there's a big, you know, shift now with people from the likes of uh, OnAfrique, which used to be MSF Africa, Um, you know, making the argument to say that, you know, for people that want to make money in fintech, look at Ethiopia. It's uh, once again another country that has over 100 million people, and you've got now a liberalization that's happening in terms of telecoms. So it's an easy play, you know, for whoever comes in and, you know, wants to actually invest. Um, There's a huge opportunity for something like that. It's a big informal economy as well. So there's huge swaths of people that don't have access to banking services. So there is, you know, huge opportunity. Unfortunately, like what you said just now, it's a country that has been uh, reeked by things like war. And that stuff hasn't gone away just because we are now liberalizing telecoms and, you know, fintech players are coming in. That also is a reality Uh, that people have to grapple with. So for investors, startups, companies, um, it's, you know, how how much do you want that market of 120 million people, you know? And, uh, you know, are you willing to put up with uh, the fact that there's, you know, war in certain regions of the country? Big market, but also at the same time carrying big risks. I'm going to find out, I mean, uh, post-war infrastructure becomes a huge issue. And of course, that's where fintechs can come in and uh, really capitalize. But of course, that would still need uh, a significant infrastructure uh, investment that fintechs are just not, uh, you know, suited to implement. No, 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 not at all. But um, the thing that you then take advantage of is the telecoms, um, you know, piece of it. And I think that's why telecoms operators are a little, a little bit better suited for something like that. Not to say that no other fintech players can come in, but rather from the infrastructure point of view, like what you said, uh, that's where it becomes crucial. One of the most interesting you know, ways in which um, telecoms-backed fintechs 
companies have grown is basically by making use of existing infrastructure. So think about all those agents that you see selling airtime, you know, in South Africa, whether it's in town and townships, people that are wearing the bibs that say Vodacom or MTN, Mm. Telcom, Celsius, whatever it is, all of those places that are selling um, airtime. Now, think about the fact that almost all those people can become mini bank tellers, right? Mm. And if you have a network of who knows, thousands of these people that were previously selling airtime, you basically upskill them to now be dealing with financial products, then you now have um, a large distribution network at your disposal and the infrastructure in place for you to, you know, get on with your life in ways that, uh, you know, few players can. Very interesting times ahead and keen to keep seeing what's happening in Ethiopia, specifically around that tech sector. Madua, that's where we wrap things up this evening. Thank you for your time and we'll chat again in a week. Definitely. Thank you so much, Nolotando. Wonderful. That was Madua Gavaza. He's tech correspondent for Business Day with the weekly tech wrap here on the Express edition of Power Business. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.